Father, we pray as we hear your word now in our worship service. We pray that it would speak to us with power. We thank you that these words are not mere human words, but these words are spirit and life. And we pray, Father, that they would make a deep impression in our hearts this afternoon. Holy Spirit, come and move in power, we pray, amongst your people. Amen. I want to say before we begin that in this passage we find incontrovertible evidence that our Lord was in fact Welsh. It's true. Check your Bible. If your Bible still has chapter 7 verse 16 in it, read it with me. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. (laughs) The Welshies in the back are very angry. But in fact, I'm sorry Welshies. That, that, uh, that phrase doesn't actually appear in the earliest manuscripts. It, it came later, obviously, when Welshies came from Wales all the way over to the Middle East and began to write that verse in for us. So there we go. The Lord might have been Welsh. Okay, so today, as we focus on the face-off between Jesus and the Pharisees, besides the Sea of Galilee, we're going to see the following. I want you to take note of this, okay? We're going to see, firstly, that any worship at all that involves the mouth, the words, the reasoning, but not the heart, is in vain. Any worship that is merely academic, is merely vocalized, but doesn't touch the heart, is futile. That's the first thing we're going to see. Secondly, we're going to see that it is possible to get so caught up in keeping earthly traditions, and you all have them, that you might actually miss the heart of God. You may actually miss God's heart. That's the second thing we're going to see. And thirdly, that Jesus tells us that the biggest problem that each individual faces in this world isn't external, but is internal. It is the problem of sin, which isn't something outside of you. Sin doesn't exist out there so that a person occasionally gets beaten up by it. Sin isn't out there. It doesn't come to us and occasionally trip us up. Sin, Jesus says, is something that is a constituent part of your nature. Sin exists in the heart of every natural human being born into this world. It's a big problem. And that's what we're going to see in today's text. Don't blame me that sometimes these messages seem negative. Why on earth are we hearing about this? This is a bit of a downer. It's the word of God. It's the word of God, thus saith the Lord. That's my defense, okay? I'm not trying to be a meanie. I'm not trying to just be all negative. We just in this church believe that the Bible is what God has given his children to feed off of. And that's why we preach it. Okay, So that's what we're going to look at today. So verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law, the scribes, had come from Jerusalem and had gathered around Jesus. Jesus and his disciples, as you remember, they've arrived on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. Remember the account of Jesus walking on water. They arrive in Gennesaret, and they're somewhere around that northeastern coast on the Sea of Galilee where Jesus did much of his ministry. And these people have been coming from far and wide. We read at the end of chapter 6. People have been bringing the sick on beds and just wanting to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. Do you remember the story of the woman with the issue of blood? 
and how now we see that that story, that testimony had gone far and wide so that the whole area was now like, if I could just do what that woman did, I'm going to get healed. Isn't that amazing? So people have been coming to Jesus from all around. We're told that Jesus has some other less welcome visitors who have traveled nearly 100 miles on foot or on the back of a donkey from Jerusalem. And these are the Pharisees and the scribes of Jerusalem. And we're told they surround Jesus. They are all around him and they begin to question him. This is the second time in Mark's gospel, actually, that this has happened. It's the second time he's had a visit from the Pharisees from Jerusalem. And the first time they came up and told him he was demonized. Do you remember that? Back in chapter 3. Now they're accusing his disciples. They're accusing his disciples of being unclean and of not following the traditions of the elders. The Pharisees and scribes of Jerusalem, brothers and sisters, they were viewed as the kind of creme de la creme of Jewish scholarship. This was like the kind of Oxford, Cambridge scholars of the Jewish faith at the time. They were seen as the spiritual leaders of the nation. And here they are, nearly 100 miles from where they live, busying themselves, traveling up into the provinces to dispute with this Galilean preacher. You can imagine the thoughts, can't you, of the Pharisees and scribes. Who does this guy think he is? Who on earth does this man think he is? We know he never studied in Jerusalem. He wasn't in any of our classes. So who's this guy suddenly with all the people following after him? Who does he think he is to teach the people of Israel? And they'll be looking at all the people thinking, what idiots. They're following this guy. He's just a flash in the pan. He's just a fancy Dan. We'll set them straight. And there's a kind of like a stiffness like a stuffiness about the scribes and Pharisees, isn't there? There's like an arrogance about the way they behave that you see right through the Gospels. And we want to avoid that, brothers and sisters. That's a temptation for all of us. They were convinced, these men, they were convinced that if God was going to move in their nation, that it was going to happen in their way. They were convinced if God is going to show up in Israel, it's going to be through us. They were convinced of it. The Messiah, in their view, wouldn't have come from some backwater town like Nazareth. He wouldn't have been born to some unknown carpenter. He would have looked and dressed like they did. Of course he would. And he would have studied under Gamaliel just like they had. He'd be a zealot for the law and the traditions of the elders. And he'd be known by them, wouldn't he? Surely they'd know him. They would recognize the Messiah above anyone else. And this Messiah surely would respect them as the shepherds of Israel. Now because Jesus didn't fit their little box, they hated him for it. They hated him for it. I just want to take a moment to say this because this can happen to us too. If we're not careful as Christians, if we've lived long enough as Christians to have experienced moves of God however small they might be, we can get a little bit crusty too, just like the Pharisees. If we've seen God move in a particular way before, it's easy to start thinking that that's the only way that God will ever move. I've got memories, I'm sure you do too, from my teenage years 
of going to Bible weeks. And I would encounter God in powerful ways, often in huge agricultural kind of like cow sheds with massive worship bands and huge speakers and thousands of other people my age. And that's where I experienced God for the first time. And it could be really easy for me to think that really that's how God does move. And unless there's a massive cow shed, unless there's a huge band, unless there are 5,000 people that look just like me, worshipping, singing the same songs, then God ain't moving. Does that make sense? It's easy to get like that. And many of us have, have tried this, especially in ministry, let me tell you. There are many who try to recreate that first experience they had with God. They try to recreate it. They try to make the environment that they're worshipping in exactly the kind of environment that they first experienced God in. You know, the worship band's got to have a keyboard player and a bass player and a lead guitarist and a drum set. And, you know, we've got to dress like this. If God's going to move, then we, we need to be suited and booted, right? We, there's all these things we have to do in order for God to land on this landing strip. And... Those who don't get on board with that, Christians that don't worship in huge environments with big bands, well, they just don't get it. You know, God's not going to move in their churches. They don't understand what attracts the Spirit of God, right? We've all heard language like that before. I remember somebody talking to me about um, a move of God that happened in Wales a few years ago. God touched a bunch of rough former prisoners in South Wales about 10 years ago. It was amazing. And uh, God was really moving. People were getting saved. And I remember a friend of mine coming to me and saying, you know, people just talk about revival like it's sovereign. They talk about it as if God just did it. And he said, no. He said, it's not like that. You see these people in South Wales? They just had the right ingredients. They just had the right setting to attract what God was wanting to do. And I just thought, no, you've got it all wrong. You've got it all wrong. Because if you think about it that way, in order to see God move, what we've got to get is a bunch of Welsh convicts in a room together, right? I mean, you might as well have a riot as a revival, you know? Um, so, sorry, Mike, I'm really ragging on the Welsh today, aren't I? But you can see how it doesn't work. Of course it was God that moved. Of course it was God with me. And I've been in many different church environments since I experienced God as a teenager that were so different to those early years, those encounters at Bible Weeks, but I still experience God. You know, I've been in tiny rooms with friends where we've prayed together and there's been awful worship music, somebody who can barely play a guitar, but I've encountered God, you know? And so it's easy to get stuck in our ways, just like the Pharisees did here, and just become a little bit conceited, a little bit puffed up, and a little bit stiff in our traditions. And I think... That's what we see a lot in the church, is that unless we're careful, we too can get stuffy, stuck in our ways, and unyielding. We, we're not ready for God to move in a fresh way. So they saw that the disciples are eating with hands that they say were defiled or unwashed. And they, they tell Jesus, they say, why are they eating bread with unwashed hands? And then from verse 3 to 4, you might have that bit in brackets, I don't know. In the NASB, it's in brackets because it's kind of an explanation. It's a parenthesis of what's happened before. The reason for that is, why it's telling you all that the Jews did, is because the book of Mark, who is it written to? 
Roman Christians, and many of them were not Jewish. They didn't know about the traditions of the Jews, so Mark is wanting to explain it to them a bit more fully. And so there's lots of things that they did that that kind of made up this thing called the tradition of the elders. There's a washing of cups and copper vessels, and they would wash when they came back from the marketplace even. And funnily enough, in the original Greek, the word for washing after they came back from the market was baptizon, right? From where we get the word baptize. So that's a full immersion, you know, that's like having a full-on shower body wash if they came back from the market. And so what we're talking about here when they say the disciples are eating bread with unwashed hands, it's not saying that they, you know, they were eating with like filthy hands. It's not talking about hygienics or, you know, cleanliness. The disciples had washed their hands, right? They'd done the, they'd done the 20 seconds, you know, they'd done the whole COVID hand washing thing. But what they hadn't done was they hadn't done this ceremonial washing of the tradition of the elders. Now, that was a little bit more religious in what it looked like. You would get a cup of water, you'd pour it down from the tips of your fingers down towards your wrists. You would then put your fist into the palm and, and move it. And as you were doing that, you'd recite a prayer. Then you'd take another cup of water and then you'd pour that water from the wrist down to the fingers. And so it was a, a ritual cleansing that they were talking about, not a kind of hygienic cleansing. And they say, why are your disciples eating with defiled hands? So this kind of ceremonial washing we're talking about, called the tradition of the elders, is actually not in the book of Moses. We're not talking about Jesus' disciples breaking the law of Moses. The only hand washing found there was for priests when they entered into the temple. What they were saying is, listen, Jesus, your disciples aren't being obedient to our traditions, and therefore they're defiled. They're defiled. Now, they are coming up and they're judging Jesus' disciples, just so you're all understanding this. They're judging Jesus' disciples not based on God's word, based on their traditions. That's important. That's important because the Pharisees did have a responsibility to run the rule over preachers and prophets that were operating in Israel. They, as the kind of shepherds of the nation of Israel, were supposed to use discernment. They were supposed to go and find out if these teachers and preachers were from God or not. But the problem is, they came all the way up to the Galilee to do that to Jesus, but instead of judging him according to what God had said, they judged him according to what their traditions had said. You see the problem? You see the problem here? They judged Jesus' ministry according to their traditions and not the scriptures. Every major heresy in church history, every error, every time the church has gone really, really badly wrong, it's always come from a desire amongst its leaders to elevate their own teachings, their own traditions over and above the scriptures. There's always been that way, right the way through church history. It's why the church needed a reformation in the 16th century under people like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and John Knox. We know that back then in the 15th century, the Roman Catholic Church 
was teaching the commands of men as though they were commands of God. Does that sound familiar to you? It's happening today. I'm going to read you a quote from one of those heretics back in the 15th century, so 16th century, so you can get a feel for it. There was a man called Johann Tetzel. Anybody heard of him? Johann Tetzel. And he was a priest who walked around the area that Luther lived in, collecting what they called indulgences. Indulgences, right? And he said this, As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. You see, the Roman Catholic Church at the time taught that you could actually purchase spiritual merit from the Catholic Church in order to help lost loved ones get out of purgatory. Did you know that? Imagine that. So, effectively, you could buy your way into heaven. Or you could buy someone else's path to heaven if you had the means. And of the many man-made traditions that were taught at the time, this one has to be one of the most destructive. The Roman Catholic Church grew extremely wealthy off the back of this particular heresy, and priests would often live licentious lifestyles. Luther actually traveled to Rome at the time all this happened, and the one thing he recorded was how disgusted he was with the priests in Rome at the time. Sleeping around, drinking, living large, off the back of all the profits they had made from the poor church people at the time. And we can think, the application today is the same, we can think of modern day Johann Tetzels, people who are living at large off the back of the health, wealth and prosperity gospel. People who are telling other Christians that if they'll just sow a seed of a thousand pounds, do it today, then God will release your blessing to you. We all know that. The televangelists staying in $10,000 a night hotel suites while the people that give their ministry money are sat at home not being able to pay their bills. How we need another reformation in our day, amen? Jesus turns to them. You have to love Jesus. He doesn't spare them. (laughs) Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites. It is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is an example of the fact that when we think of reformers, Martin Luther was just a copy of Jesus. He's just trying to do what Jesus did, right? He didn't do it perfectly, but Jesus is the ultimate reformer. Jesus is the ultimate reformer. He is not trying to create some new thing when he talks to the Pharisees this way. He's trying to reform what they were trying to do. And he absolutely eviscerates them doesn't he he doesn't spare them at all he doesn't pull any punches he doesn't go to them privately and just be like hey guys you know I didn't feel super comfortable with the way you were talking about my disciples it kind of made me look bad you know can we just can we just process this together he confronts them publicly and calls them out for their error oh lord how we could all do with a little bit more of a dose of Jesus in situations now and again. 
Now, why does Jesus do that? Why does he do that? Wouldn't it have been a bit more loving to do what I just said, you know, to, to kind of let the Pharisees have their say? Just let them say what they're going to say. Guys, let's just keep walking. Why did he have to confront them? I want you to see something today about the Lord and about God because we're looking at Jesus who is God in human flesh, aren't we? And the Bible says that God is love. So therefore, anything that Jesus does or says is love. Would that be fair to say? I want you to see that even though Jesus' words for these men are strong, they are loving. They are loving. Not everything that feels nice is love. And I think that's one mistake that we make as, as Christians very often, is we might come to church and hear a message that cuts us. I didn't like that. I didn't feel loved by that. But then we read Jesus' words. You hypocrites. We read Paul's words. You whitewashed wall. And we think, oh my goodness, what's this? It's not very polite. And sure, it doesn't feel very polite, but it was loving. Imagine, it's like if you saw a child run out into the road. If you saw a child running out into a road with busy traffic, what would you do instinctively? You would do whatever it took physically to get that child out the way of the traffic. You'd grab them and you'd dive, right? Now, you might make the child feel a bit uncomfortable. You might grab their arm. It might hurt a little bit. But you've saved their life. The child might not have felt super loved by it in the second that you did it, but it saved their life. So you see how sometimes acts of love don't always feel like really lovey and really comfortable. Sometimes love can feel a bit like a slap on the back of the head, right? But it doesn't make it not loving. These men, you see, they were pretending to be something that they weren't. They were pretending to be the true shepherds of God's people. They were pretending to be the good shepherd. And all the while, they're judging Jesus, who was the good shepherd. Jesus was loving God's sheep by exposing these false shepherds. He was saving the sheep by exposing this false teaching publicly. So that no people in that crowd went away that day thinking, you know what, the Pharisees really showed Jesus. They really showed him up. Jesus was protecting the sheep by exposing their hypocrisy publicly. People will often say, you know, because I've, I've done this on occasion. I have a few podcasts where I will talk about certain teachings that are around in the church. And people will occasionally say, Graham, what's the need for calling out false teaching? Why do you have to make a big deal out of this? Why do you have to be all awkward and mention certain people by name who are teaching these things? You don't know them. So how can you judge them? If you don't know them personally, how could you possibly judge them? If you haven't gone to them privately first and got to know them, you shouldn't be calling them out. And that idea, that kind of sentiment comes from Matthew 18. If you know Matthew 18, this is Jesus talking about what to do if your brother or sister in Christ sins against you. 
It's a really interesting passage. Let's look at it. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. How often do you do that? Wow. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Woo! This is elevating it. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. It's the words of the Lord. That's what Jesus taught us to do when a fellow Christian sins against us personally. Somebody sins against you personally, steals some money from you, does something awkward that's inappropriate. It's in private, and so you go to them in private. That's the appropriate response. If somebody sins against you, and you don't talk to them first, and you stand up in a church and go, so-and-so stole some money from me last week, that's wrong. That's not the appropriate way to deal with it. A sin in private deserves a private confrontation. However, that's not what's happening when somebody is out in the church teaching a false gospel publicly, is it? If somebody is sinning publicly, promoting a false gospel, you don't go to them privately because they haven't sinned against you privately. They are sinning publicly. So you need to confront that sin publicly. And you see time and time again that Paul, in the epistles, he wasn't afraid to name names. He wasn't afraid to call out names. And on occasion, not all the time, but on occasion, it is appropriate to do that. Now Jesus actually goes to the book of Isaiah, doesn't he? And he says that Isaiah was prophesying about these Pharisees. He was actually prophesying about them. And the prophecy that Jesus quotes is found in Isaiah 29:13, And it reads like this in the NIV. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship, sorry, their worship of me is based merely on human rules that they have been taught. Now we know that Isaiah's prophecy was actually about the people of Jerusalem back in his day around about 800 years before Jesus lived. But Jesus is saying that this prophecy was also about the Pharisees of his day. I want for us to see something quickly, and that's this. This shows us how God's word, though it was written by men who lived many thousands of years ago, can be made to apply to our lives today. Prophetically, the scriptures can have multiple applications there can be a prophecy that's fulfilled 700 years ago, but also now, okay? We know that we can say with David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Even though we know David could say that too. We know that God's word to his people, Israel, through Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 33, 3, is the same to us as it was to God's people then. It reads, call to me and I will answer you and will tell you great and hidden things that you would not have known. We know that's true to us today as well, don't we? It doesn't just have one finite application hundreds of years ago. It speaks to us right here, right now. Jesus calls them hypocrites. Now, this is a Greek word, actually. That's where we get the word from, hypocrite. It's directly from the Greek, and it's a theatrical term that was used to describe an actor. 
If somebody was a, a hypocrite or a hypocrites in the Greek, they were a play actor, a play actor, a pretender, somebody who pretended to be something that actually they were not. So how were these men, these scribes and Pharisees, how were they hypocrites? How were they that? Jesus said it's because they honor God with their mouths for everybody to hear. But in reality, their heart is far from me. They loved to talk about God, particularly the high things of God, the holiness of God, theology, orthodoxy. But not because they loved God, they just loved being right. It's possible, brothers and sisters, to have a passion for right doctrine, to love truth, but actually to miss the heart of God. These men were all puffed up with pride because of what they knew. Instead of being humbled by the God that all of their studying revealed. Knowing things about God and knowing things about the Bible isn't any use to us unless we know the God who the Bible reveals. Amen? Their worship of God, it didn't flow from a grateful, ransomed heart. But instead, it was, just, it was just what they learned to do. It was just perfunctory. It was a performance. It was bare religion. There's no life in it. No love. No passion. I wonder if you feel that and challenged by that today. Sometimes I am. I want my worship to be filled with passion, not just good theology. Instead of truly teaching God's people what they needed, they were, which was the commandments of God, these people, Jesus says they were neglecting that. They were neglecting God's commandments. And instead they were teaching their own commandments as if they were God's. And this is what revealed who they were. They were play actors. They're false shepherds. Hypocrites. Jesus said, you know what? Your worship of God, no matter how sincere it is, no matter how theologically accurate it might be, is in vain. It's futile. Put simply, what makes worship acceptable to God isn't how sincerely it is offered. That's really key. Because there are many people out there who sincerely believe they're worshipping God, but in fact are not. It's a scary thought. Sincerity doesn't necessarily mean God accepts that worship. Neither does God accept worship just because it's passionate. Remember the story of the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel when the prophets of Baal came up against Elijah. The prophets of Baal had some incredible passionate worship. They circled all day around the altar, cutting themselves and wailing and speaking babble. They were very passionate, but their worship was not acceptable to God. God will only accept worship which is offered both in spirit, as Jesus said, which is with our whole heart, with the core of our being. It comes from here, not just from here or here. It comes from our hearts. He will only accept worship that's in spirit and in truth, okay? Which is in accordance with God, what God has revealed about himself in the scriptures. 
So it's no use offering passionate, heartfelt worship without any care for the truth. You know, if you just want to say, oh, I don't want to know about theology, I just love Jesus, man. Well, how do you know that you're worshipping the right Jesus? There's lots of Jesuses out there. The Muslims have a Jesus. The Jews have a Jesus. The Jehovah's Witnesses have a Jesus. How do you know your Jesus is the right one if you don't want to actually read about him and believe what the Bible has to say about him? Equally, it's no use offering worship that's theologically correct but dry as a bone. We've all seen that too, haven't we? Not coming from our hearts, but we've learned it by rote. We just know it's the right thing to do. That's not acceptable to God either. And then Jesus says to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your own tradition. Verse 9 to me is a joy. You know why? It tells us that Jesus used sarcasm. Did you catch that? You have a fine way of going wrong. Jesus used sarcasm to illustrate a point. Isn't it wonderful to know that our Lord has a sense of humor? Apparently not. And on occasions, that sense of humor was rather dry. Well, I like it anyway. Jesus uses an example to show how these Pharisees were using their own traditions to get around obeying God's commands. And we can see how they felt excused in being disobedient to God because they were especially pious in following their own holy traditions, weren't they? They didn't see their traditions as being separate from God's word, but an extension of them. Okay, And that's why they felt so self-righteous. Oh, we don't just obey the scriptures, we obey the tradition too. We go beyond the scriptures. And sometimes we can actually let, uh, we can let tradition sorry, prevent us from obeying God's commands. We can let these traditions keep us from God's heart if we're not careful. And let me show you and prove to you how that's the case. Traditions are things which have been passed down to us, often by older generations. It's just the way we do things here. You ever heard that before? Started a new job. Oh, what's all this about? Oh, it's just the way we do things. That's a tradition. Go to a church. Why, why is that person doing that? Oh, it's just the way we do things. That's a tradition, okay? And some of them are good, and some of them are bad, okay? An example of a good one would be praying before dinner. The Bible doesn't say, you shall pray before dinner. But we do it, don't we? And it's a good tradition. However, if I take that tradition to the nth degree and I say that no one shall eat in my house until they have said grace. On the outside, it sounds like a great thing, doesn't it? But listen, I may end up not obeying God's command that I should love my neighbor. If I'll take that tradition to its logical conclusion. Each of us has been raised with certain traditions in church, attitudes about how worship ought to happen. Should it be on an organ or with a band? Attitudes about how we ought to dress to church. Should we wear a suit? Should we be casual? Whether we ought to drink alcohol or not? 
Though we might have very strongly held convictions about these things, none of these things ought to keep us from fellowship with other believers. And to do that would invalidate, you can see, it would set aside God's commands to us in order to hold to our traditions. Does that make sense? The Pharisees felt through holding on to their traditions that they could maintain cleanness. Jesus had some bad news for them. Some very sobering news for all of their rituals, for all of their washings and baptizings and dippings and cleanings. None of those processes could ever maintain their cleanness. It was impossible because their uncleanness, it wasn't something to do with their bodies. They weren't unclean because their hands were dirty or some other part of their body was dirty. This defilement, Jesus says, it wasn't coming from outside to contaminate them. The contamination was actually coming from them to the outside. They were a walking contamination. It was flowing from their hearts, from the core of their being. That's what we mean when we say heart. Don't get caught up. The Greek word is cardia, where we get cardiovascular, right? But the Hebrew word is lev. And the Hebrew word for heart, lev, it means the core of your being, the seat of your emotions, the seat of your mind, your will. So the idea of a a head v's heart divide in Hebrew, it doesn't work. It was all one thing. The heart is the seat of who you are. And Jesus says, guys, bad news. Sin, defilement, filthiness, it's flowing out of there all the time. You can't clean yourself however cleverly you want to play these rituals out. Jesus lists a bunch of bad things that flow out of the natural heart, doesn't he? He says evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, deceit, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Oh my gosh, why does he list all those things? Wouldn't they have just got it? Wouldn't they have understood his disciples? I think he listed them because there isn't one person sat in this room today that can't identify with at least something in that list. Every single person can say, he's got me there. He's got me. Spurgeon said this, I sicken as I think how man has plagued his fellow man by his sins. But I will not go through the list, nor need I. The devil has preached upon this text this week, and few have been able to escape the horrible exposition. What did he mean? We're faced with our own sins every week, every day, and the devil likes to remind us of it. We don't often need, as Christians, reminding how much we fail in respect of holiness. We know we need cleansing and we know we can't do it ourselves. Amen? But only the Christian feels that way. Jesus wanted the Pharisees, he wants you to know today that true holiness isn't a matter of religious obedience. It's not about washing your hands or contamination uh, being washed away by any kind of ritual cleansing. You don't just need an improved heart, Jesus says. You need a new heart. You need a brand new heart. Just like it says in Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Spurgeon said that the heart was a reservoir, a reservoir. It's the source of all of your deeds. In fact, Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. The Bible teaches that 
we ultimately can't control and edit what's going on in here. What's going on in here is going to find its way out, whether we like it or not. And Jesus wants for you to see today that outside of him, that for the natural man, not necessarily for the Christian, okay? I'm not going to talk about that today. But for the natural person born into this world, the reservoir of your heart is dreadfully polluted. Dreadfully polluted. And if a reservoir is polluted, what happens when people try and drink from it? They get polluted too. (laughs) It's a very, very dark thing. No matter how much we work on that reservoir, we try to purge all the uncleanness out of it. No matter how much we try to treat the waters of the reservoir of our heart, it can never be made pure by us. Never. Just like the waters of Marah. You know, when the people of Israel came out into the wilderness, they found this place called Marah. Mara, which means bitter in Hebrew, because the water was too bitter to drink. They couldn't drink it. They were thirsty. Here's a lake, but we can't drink of the water. It's too bitter. In Exodus 15, to 25, I will finish in a moment. It says this, Then Moses ordered Israel to set out from the Red Sea. They went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Mara, they could not drink of the water of Mara because it was bitter. That's why it's called Mara. And the people complained against Moses and said, What shall we drink? And he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and an ordinance. There he put them to the test. Those bitter waters were the waters of your heart. That piece of wood is the cross of Jesus Christ. When we take that cross into our heart, we are truly cleansed. The reservoir is no longer polluted, but instead is good for others to drink. So have you come to a place today Well, you know that no amount of dead religious observance can purify you. Have you arrived at a place where you know you can't better yourself and make yourself righteous by your own works? Think of the story of Eustace in the Chronicles of Narnia. He's turned into a dragon and nothing he does can scrape away those scales. No matter how much he might try, he needs Aslan to breathe upon him and make him pure again. Are we ready to die with Christ? Are we ready to be raised to life in God through him? If there's any doubt in your mind as to whether you're saved, then today is the day to make sure of it. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. Let's stand together. I'm going to invite uh, Yvonne back up and the worship team, and we're going to sing a song of praise before we end. But I do want to just take a moment as the worship bands get set to just pray together and just commit our hearts to the Lord. If you are here today or you're watching on the live stream and you know that what I've said is true about you, then let's not pass this moment by. Equally, if you know that you've allowed tradition to get in the way of observing what God wants for your life. If you know, maybe you've missed the heart of God. You've been too concerned about being right. We can all do it. If you've gotten stuffy, stiff in your worship of God, then now's a great time to ask the Holy Spirit to come and touch you afresh. 
If you need a healing touch in your body this afternoon, we've heard an amazing testimony of God's healing power today. I want for you in worship in this final song, just to allow the Holy Spirit to work on you afresh this afternoon. Amen. Let's sing together the final song.